0: Good afternoon. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to teach this text to us this afternoon, this evening. It's kind of a fun uh, close of a, a season here. And here's what I mean by that. You know, my wife and I have been watching Rings of Power on Amazon Prime. Uh, we're not huge Lord of the Rings people, but they spent $500 million making it, so we feel like we owed them at least a view or two. You know, that's kind of how that went. It was pretty good, though, but you know, at first it kind of gets going slow as Lord of the Rings stuff is, tends to do, but then eventually you kind of get hooked and you're excited for the next episode, excited for the next episode, until the worst thing happened this past week, which, spoiler alert, the season ended, now you have to wait like six months to find out what happens next, I don't know how long it's going to take, but it, uh, it's pretty frustrating not having everything on demand all at once, it's like the good old days where you had to like wait to experience the next thing, and so now that's kind of what we're dealing with right now, is we're in this uh, sermon series that has three seasons with a bunch of episodes, we season one, It was all about the life of Saul. Israel's like, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God is like, trust me, no you don't. Human kings are terrible. And they go, "Uh, yes we do. And he goes, fine, you get what you ask for. It's Saul. Saul starts off really good and then he tanks. And then this guy David comes along and God does say, David's going to be better than Saul. uh, But, you know, barely is what ends up turning. David does really well. Thank goodness this guy's way better than Saul. And then he tanks. And this is really the ending of the David tanks story this this week ends season 2 of we want a king and in the coming weeks we're going to talk about king solomon and how his arc is surprise surprise he seems really good and then he tanks as well and so a lot of what this first uh, and second samuel and first and kings are designed to do is what we're hoping happens in our church is that our tight-fistedness around trusting human leaders kind of gets broken up and we and we start to realize that we can only truly and fully and finally trust the Lord and every now and then he uses broken human leaders to do his will, but we can't be going all in on any human leader uh, of any kind. And so this is really the last bit of plot we get on David. Next week we start into First Kings and hear about his son Solomon and how he repeats the sins of his father but goes even uh, more so on a bunch of uh, these various things. And so uh, today what we're going to talk about is this, this text that to me initially is pretty confusing. Right in, 1 Samuel, in 2 Samuel 24, David takes a census, he counts all the people, and apparently it's a terrible thing that he did. If I was going like, to list off the worst things David did, uh, you have uh, the sexual assault, you have the murdering, you have the being an absentee terrible father, you have uh, not doing justice, and kind of the most benign of the sins, I would say, is counting the people, because I'm not even totally sure why it's a sin when you first read it. All you know is this guy's counting the people, and afterwards he's like, I've sinned greatly. And you're like, oh gosh, what did he do? It's not even super clear what happens. And so what I want us to see is how uh, this is kind of the final uh, crash and burn of David, partially because it's, de- it's designed, like the reason God, I think, wrote this into history and that Samuel wrote this into his book, is it's really designed to help us look past David and to the true and greater David, who is Christ, and is trying to help us see how Jesus is just so much a better king, a better leader than David was in every single way. And so we're going to see a couple of things in this text about data, a couple of things about a substitute and how kings cause suffering, uh, and then a little bit about the foundation of our relationship with God, and we're going to see how Jesus is better than David every step along the way. So let me pray, and then I'm going to walk us through um, 1 Samuel 24. God, I ask that you would help us uh, identify with David, that we would see how we sin like David, how we uh, solve our sin in a way similar to David. And I ask that we would be shepherded by how you treat David, and we'd see you, Jesus in the flesh, as this true and greater David. In your name we pray, Amen. Amen. So I titled this sermon, Data Won't Deliver, and partially because I want us to see the real temptation that we face in modern culture to trust data as the salvation for humanity. This is like an entire school of thought. There's this group of people called the physicalists who would say all that is is literally our physical stuff. There is no consciousness. Consciousness is just some kind of uh, fabrication of f- the fizzing in our brains, the atoms. Uh, there is no mind, there is no spiritual realm, there's certainly no God. All we are is this kind of bumbling, moving forward mass of atoms that so-called survival of the fittest has led us to this current point in time. And so these physicalists look forward to this future reality in which finally, information technology, neural links, uh, microchips in the brain, And the right IT is going to bring us into the the true and greater way of existing. That all human suffering is somehow a technological problem. And with the right information, right application, and right innovation, we can actually build our future with the right amount of information. That this is a project Elon Musk has been working on for a long time, that we're going to somehow be able to reduce or map human mind function to a series of ones and zeros and map it all out and upload it to the internet and we're finally going to be able to leave these gross bags of flesh behind and exist on the cloud forever and eternity and that will be the new heavens new earth. Heaven will be us being uploaded. This is the way the world has been headed. This is the direction we're trending as a society. Is this deep-seated belief that if we just get the right information organized in the right way and believed in rightly, we are going to bring about the new heavens and the new earth, and that is the way that we're going to solve human suffering and solve human problems. Now, we may not buy into that narrative wholesale, but there is that piece of us that wants to trust the data, trust the information, and we believe that if we had the right information that we would all be Okay. And this problem might seem like it's a product of the information age, the rise in computing that we're going to see ourselves uh, because of computer technology, which is you know the the, the, the amount of information in the world's doubling every two years, the computer processing speed is doubling every two years, which is going to be this dramatic up into the right influx of information, and that's going to bring about this this state that's not good. we're going to be freed from suffering finally once and for all. We've been living in the information age now for about 20 years and is it delivering on expectations? Turns out the more information we have, the more anxious we get. Turns out the more information we have, the more we have to fight about. Turns out the more information we have, the more it just gets used by the algorithms on our phones and our screens to sell us stuff. That turns out that uh, massive corporations, global corporations are not super interested in human flourishing, they are interested in human spending and purchasing and it's a temptation for us, especially as people who get fed this algorithm of, of specially curated. They can see how long you look at a screen and see what you click on it so you don't click on. And they keep filling your mind with this echo chamber of information to keep you watching, keep you watching, and keep the dopamine dumping and keep you tuned in. And it feels like I'm getting what I want out of life, but then it just leads to greater degrees of depression, greater degrees of anxiety, greater degrees of separation, that we're more connected, more communicative than ever before, and we're lonelier than ever before. And I hope we all hear loud and clear that more data, more information won't deliver us. So when David here goes to take account, he wants to get the number out, David's falling into the same trap that we fall into as humans. At the end of his life, maybe it's because he sees himself as a failure as a father, failure as a husband, failure as a king. It's like, well, maybe if the numbers tell me to feel good about myself, then I'll feel good about myself. Maybe I failed as a man, but let me check the bank account. Maybe I failed as a failed as a dad, let me check the investments. Maybe I've failed as a husband, let me check my golf score. That we're looking for numbers somehow to, to salve our sense of not enough, to salve our sense of failure, to salve our, our wounded consciousness. And David here at the end of his life, as his last move, he wants to take a census. And what it says is he goes, like, let's take a census. And then this guy named Joab comes to him after the Lord tempts him and says, hey, I think it's a really bad idea. And Joab, up to this point, if you've been reading along, is a terrible guy. And when the terrible guy thinks, that's bad even for me, you should go bing, bing, bing. If it's, if it's too bad for Joab, it's too bad for everybody. So what, what's the big deal here? That's the that's question I want us to, like, wrestle with? What's the big deal with the census? And so those of you who are like um, the algorithms have decided that you're kind of questioning whether the Bible is true or not, you've probably seen this contradiction or intention in Scripture. 1 Samuel 24 verse 1, here's what it says. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number the Israel, the, uh, the number Israel and Judah. And so kind of like there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four accounts of the same story. They complement each other. They clarify each other. They get a fuller picture altogether. So, also, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and this other book in the Old Testament called 1 and 2 Chronicles are the same story told from different angles, and they complement each other. But here's what 1 Chronicles 21 and 22, which tell the story, says. So, 1 Samuel 24 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So, he, the Lord, incited David against them, saying, First Chronicles 21, in telling the same story, says this. Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So we ask the question, who did it? Who tempted David, God or Satan? So there's kind of a couple options here when you face this type of thing in Scripture. Option one is to take the path of least resistance, which is the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust it. All of this is just a bunch of smoke and mirrors trying to get money from people. Right, that these kind of Neanderthals who put together the Bible uh, can barely read and write, and they put together these narratives, and these obvious contradictions didn't stick out to them. But now, we as modern, enlightened, literate people, uh, we can see clearly that this isn't to be trusted. That's kind of the default way of responding to these things. Uh, but it turns out a lot of these folks, I mean, some of them are pretty dumb, but a lot of the folks, uh, thousands of years ago, weren't all idiots. It's it's kind of modern chronological snobbery, C.S. Lewis calls it, to just presume that we're smarter than all people who come before us. These people are highly literate, highly paying attention, and they're doing a lot of this stuff on purpose. And so what I'm going to argue is that these two sections of Scripture don't contradict each other. They clarify each other. They explain each other. That when we operate in terms of a worldview of the Jews, the world of these Hebrew people, that they had this working understanding that God was sovereign over all things and he uses characters even like Satan, even like evil, and he allows them to do things for the purpose of teaching, uh, correcting, or even like wreaking havoc in various places to teach people to not trust God. Uh, and earthly things, and so it's my favorite time of the year. Luke mentioned this earlier. It's fall. It's good going for a walk weather, and so uh, I have two kids that if they're outside, they're just doing better, and so we got this kind of double limo stroller thing, uh, nine-month-old in the back, almost three-year-old in the front. It's kind of dusk, and you go out for a walk, and the nice thing is you meet the neighbors. Uh, The 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 not nice thing is uh, you meet the neighbors, and so some of the neighbors are fun to meet. Some of the neighbors, you're like, I could have gone without that interaction, and but here we are, right? And so uh, we're walking around the corner. got Jay in the front, Olivia in the back, going for a nice walk. And the garage opens, and this uh, husband and wife come out, and they have this 130-pound uh, ball of fluff and slobber on a leash. And I see the leash, and at first I'm like, oh, thank goodness, a leash, right? Because my son Jay is not interested in, like, big, slobbery dogs all up in his face. We have a dog, but it's more like a cat. It's like seven pounds, and it sits on top of the couch. It's, it's biologically a dog that identifies as a cat. That's kind of how it works. So he's fine with the dogs that are below his knee, but dogs above his knee, not into it. So we're going for a walk, and this guy comes out with the le- dog on a leash, and as soon as JC's a dog, he's like, no, no, no. He's pretty good at telling you what he doesn't want, right? And so then the guy comes walking with the leash right up to the front of the stroller, and I'm like, stop the stroller. I'm backing it up, and this guy, I'm thinking, this guy looks like he has a most of his brain. What's he doing walking with his dog? And so he's kind of really quickly walks right up to the front of the thing and sticks the dog right in Jay's face. And Jay's kicking it in the face. And no, 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 kicking this dog. And the guy's like, oh, the dog won't bite. And I'm like backing the stroller up. And then the guy kind of walks off. And I'm like, good job, Jay. You know, kick, kick that dog. You know, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> he's like captive in this thing. He's kind of defending himself. And, and it made me realize this, that uh, you know, the, I'm not mad at the dog. Dogs do dog things. I'm not mad at the leash. The leash is doing what it was supposed to do. But that guy, man, I'm like, does this guy live in this society? You know, I don't know what the, like, what is he? Never been around a two and a half year old who's screaming no? What does that mean? And so he goes walking off, and we just kind of stand there, let him go around the corner. And it, it made me realize that all that matters, like, you don't trust leashes, you don't trust dogs, but you should, like, you can only trust the leash as far as depending on who's holding the leash. That if that guy wasn't a total idiot, I'd be totally fine, you know? But he clearly didn't have a framework for how to interact with people, and so the leash meant nothing. The leash was good for nothing. It might as well not have a leash. What's the point of having a leash if you're just going to, like, follow the dog around and let it decide what's going on? But God, so in the book of Job, it describes Yahweh, the Lord Most High, as holding Leviathan, you know, as another, like, uh, another name for Satan, as he's on a cord, he's on a leash, That he's really evil, he really does destroy things, but he only does what God even allows him to do. That evil is leashed. And you have to ask the question, would I rather live in a world with unleashed evil in this kind of like yin and yang, uh, Manichaean worldview of good versus evil wrestling it out? Or would I rather live in a world where there's this good sovereign God who has evil on a leash who sometimes allows it to do things we don't think he should do? Well, what we'd rather live in the world of uh, doesn't totally matter because the world we live in is a world where God has evil on a leash and he sometimes allows Satan to do things. He sometimes allows Satan to tempt or prod or, or incite people. And so to the, to the Jewish worldview, here you have the Lord allowing this to happen. Then you have uh, Satan causing this to happen. And there's not a contradiction. This is a clarification. This is how it works. God is at least indirectly, either allowing or authoring all things that happen. And so it's totally fair to ask the question, is God good? Can I trust him? But biblically speaking, it's not really fair to ask, is God in control? Is he sovereign? Because that is just assumed and stated as fact. But throughout the Bible, God's people are regularly asking the question, what are you doing, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting that happen? How can I trust you when this is happening? That's called relationship with God. That's when you believe God is sovereign and you don't really like what's going on, you can question and ask if he's good. And I'm just telling you that based on what I know about God, based on me reading the arc of the whole of the scriptures, based on me seeing God in the flesh and Jesus in the New Testament, I trust his heart even if I can't exactly trace what's going on with his hand. And so, if anybody wants to talk to you about the Bible contradicting itself, I just want you to feel like you go like, that's actually not true. The Bible does clarify or add depth to or um, create texture to the way that God operates in the world, but nowhere in the Bible is it contradicting itself. And actually, presuming that it does uh, is kind of this arrogant, smug, looking down on the nose of ancient peoples who largely were actually pretty sharp, even though they may not be as scientifically advanced as we are. So... God allows this to happen. God goes to David and he incites him to count the people. And here's what we learn about what's going on with David counting the people is when Job says this, or Joab says this, Lord, why does this king delight in this thing? This is what it says in chapter 24, verse 3. Why do you delight in counting the people? See, God's not against numbers or numbering people. He has a whole book in the Old Testament called numbers he's not against be keeping a track he's not against uh, d- understanding how it's going but there's something going on in David's heart here where he's going i'm delighting in the numbers not just i'm aware of them you know there's times as a leader you have to know the numbers so that you can make good decisions or make good like uh, processes or you can try to set up a situation or structure that's Informed by the numbers, but what God does not like is people who are controlled by the numbers, who want to reduce people to statistics, statistics, and trends, and figures, and sociological patterns of being. That God sees individuals as full of dignity and value and personhood and capacity and thoughts and emotions and values. And frankly, the bigger you are and the more, uh, the bigger the environment or the area that you're responsible to lead, the easier and more tempting it is to boil people down to the numbers and stop seeing them as individuals who need to be known, loved, and seen. And so David is delighting in the numbers. Now this is It's easy to judge David for this, right? Like, I remember when I was, let me think, like 17, 18, 19, and I had, like, $54 to my name, and I'd hear about these other adults who, like, uh, were stressed about the economy and who were all flustered about uh, insurance rates and gas prices and uh, cost of living, and as an 18-year-old, just going, man, I wish they had as much faith as me. I'm not worried about the economy, I'm not worried about gas prices, I'm not worried about housing costs, Uh, I don't trust in things of the earth like these people do, you know. Because when you have nothing to lose, you have nothing to worry about. (laughs) But as you have things to lose, you have things to worry about. David, the shepherd boy, all he has is a sling. He sees Goliath, and he sees all these Israelites, these faithless, fearful people, and they're measuring how tall he is, and they're weighing his sword and his shield, and they're considering the numbers of Goliath, and like, we can't fight that guy. Have you seen the data? Have you seen the information? If you had the information, we, we wouldn't fight Goliath, and David rolls up says, give me a rock. I got the Lord on my side. I'm going to get that guy, and David, the giant slayer, isn't ruled by the information, then you have David, and here's the, other, here's the other clue we get here in chapter 24, verse 9. What exactly is, is the data that's being reported, right? Because you care about what you count or what you're counting what you care about. As is is it comes back, it says there are 800 valiant men who drew the sword. See, David's not counting the women and children. David's not counting the old men. David's not counting the prepubescent boys. He's counting the men who can carry the sword. David, the giant killer, is going, how many swords do we have? Should I feel good about my kingdom? How many swords do you have? How big is our military? And it's easy to judge David and like, look at how he's just crashed and burned, man. This, But it's, if we're trying to identify with David, we're going, man, he's got a nation to lead. He's got children to protect. He's got boundaries to secure. He's got, and all of a sudden, the more time you spend on earth, the more tempting it is to trust and cling to earthy things. You know, the keeping up with the Joneses, the keeping up with the Philistines, how many swords we got, how many spears we got, can we hold our own? All of a sudden, the Lord who goes before us and fights our battles isn't doing it. And here's what's crazy is a couple of decades before this story, David wrote this prayer in Psalm verse 20, he says this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some people trust in military power, not us. A couple years later, David's counting the swords. How many times have we done that? I'm not gonna trust in that. Anxiously checks bank account. I'm not gonna go there. And then you go there. I'm not gonna get all wrapped up in this economic downturn desperately reads the Wall Street Journal. Like we're we're like David. We don't trust in those things. We're God's people. Turns out, mm, functionally, a lot of time, we do. See, there's a better king than David, and his name is Jesus. And he's aware of the numbers, but he's the one who leaves the 99 to go after the one. His mode of counting is totally different. Being numbers aware and being numbers controlled is totally different. Being ignorant about the data and being subservient to the data are two different things see God can number the hairs on our head but it doesn't control him we can be people who go there's a good purpose for information there's a good purpose for data but we're not going to submit to it and we're not going to let the graphs tell us what to do the second thing we see in this text is David admits that he sinned, his heart has been trusting the data. He's trusting the David the data to deliver him from the Philistines and what happens is he goes, I've sinned, I want to make it right, and then uh, the prophet of the Lord comes to David and says, "The Lord has told you this. You get to choose your punishment." And if you ever had a parent do that to you, I think I had my dad do that to me one time, like, here's what happened, now you can choose your consequence, this, this, or this. And it's like just adds to the anxiety of it because now you're anxious about choosing the right punishment and, and then you're also anxious about the punishment itself. And so God comes to David and says, David, here's your choice. You have three options for your punishment for this sin. Option number one, three years of famine on the whole land. Option two, you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you. Option three, three days of pestilence in the land. Now consider and decide your answer. Then in verse 14, David says this, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. Now here's where David goes wrong. This is called adding sin to sin. So David sins, he admits he sins, but then in covering up or in cleaning up or in addressing the sin, he sins again. So when David first sins, he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take this iniquity away from your servant, for I have done foolishly. Then what happens when he's choosing his punishment? He says, I am great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. What happened to them? I did this, I did this, I did this. He's like, okay, our punishment will be. And he's going, oh, hey, it's not really me problem. It's an us problem. The community, I'm not the only one to blame. Whatever, whatever it is, he's, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. He says, let not me fall into the hand of man. Meaning, David has a choice. Everybody suffers for your sin you suffer for your sin, or in a different way, everybody suffers for your sin. And he goes, let not me fall into the hand of man, let us fall into the hand of the Lord. David goes, please don't single me out to suffer for my sin. Let us all do this together. So it says, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died the people of Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. This is called the substitution. We know this is how the world works. When leaders sin, everybody else suffers. When pastors sin or are foolish, everybody else suffers. When presidents sin or are foolish, everybody else suffers suffers when governors sin or are foolish everybody else suffers when moms or dads sin or are foolish the children suffer that the suffering of leaders gets pushed down onto the people and here's David being just like all the other kings going yeah I know it was on me let's all pay for my sin together Now partially God is designing the world this way. He's designed leaders to be able to affect change and affect the people they're following. And to have the capacity for good requires an equal and opposite capacity for evil. That if you want leaders to be able to affect communities, they have to be able to do it both for good and for bad. And this is part of the way that God authors the world. Not only that, but back in Exodus 30, God is warning the people about becoming overly census dependent. He's like, take a census if you need to, but he's trying to de-incentivize census taking as a mode of feeling good about the nation of Israel. And here's what he says. He says, when you take a census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Meaning, the default is you take a census, a plague happens. Why God sets it up this way, I'm not totally sure, but at a minimum, he's going, we, the people of Israel, are not census-bound people. Our, our, our sense of self is not bound up in numbers. Our sense of self is bound up in covenant with God Most High. Each one of them who is numbered in the census shall give half a shekel, which is like 20 bucks. If you're going to count all the people, everyone's got to pay 20 bucks. Kind of like an offering. David takes the census in the wrong way, and he takes the census as a means of trusting it, and because of David's sin, the people suffer. We know this is how it works. Had a bad day at work. Sorry, everybody. You all get to deal with dad in a bad mood. You get caught in your sin. You double down, lie, pass the blame, make someone else feel crazy. You make a mistake. You deny, deflect, don't don't own it. It creates ripples in the organization. We are just like David going, I don't want to be, I don't want to really own it on my own. I want to, like, let's all own it together. And here's the beauty of this, is that there's a king better than David, and his name is Christ, and he does literally the exact opposite of David. Rather than the people suffering for the sin of the king, the king suffers for the sin of the people. Rather than causing the people to suffer what the king had done wrong, the king suffers what the people had done wrong. Rather than the people serving as substitute for the king, the king serves as substitute for the people, and that's Christ, And I think it's beautiful that in the last act of David's story, we get this clear as day picture of David being the opposite of Christ. You wanted a king, you got a human king, and look at him. He's the opposite of what you'd hope would happen. But isn't it, it's just crazy to me how David gets this choice. Do you want to suffer for your sin, or do you want other people to suffer for your sin? And he goes, hmm, other people. But we face those little choices all the time. Do I want to own it, absorb it into myself? i want to make other people pay, doubling down on my hard-heartedness, digging my heels in. One of the main ways we get to image Christ is when we as leaders of various fears make the choice to suffer for other people's sin rather than making them suffer. That is called forgiveness. It's absorbing the cost into yourself rather than pushing the wrath back onto others. That's not to say that correction, and discipline, being honest are incompatible with forgiveness. But when you choose to not let the wrath out against someone else's sin and to say, I'm going to be the one to suffer the emotional loss here, we get to be like Christ. Then David, after seeing 70,000 people die because of his sin, because of his failure to execute the law, because of his failure to absorb punishment for this. you know, This is why I think this is kind of, I said it might be the most benign of David's sins, but actually up to this point, he hadn't murdered 70,000 people. (laughs) It looks pretty bad, the consequences of it. Verse 17 says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel striking people and said, Behold, I have sinned, meaning I have sinned again. I have done wickedly. These sheep, what have they done? And it's a little bit like, David, you know, too little, too late. You should have been thinking about this a couple days ago. What should I do? He says, okay, make an altar, make a sacrifice to the Lord, atone for your sin that way. What ends up happening is David goes and buys this threshing floor, and on that floor, he makes an altar, and on that altar, he offers a burnt offering to sacrifice for its sin. And it says, and the Lord responded to the plea, and the plague was averted from Israel. But here's the thing we want to see here. So a couple chapters ago, David goes, I have a house. The Lord doesn't have a house. I'm going to build a house for the Lord. And at first the prophet's like, that's a great idea. But then the prophet hears from God and says, actually, no, your son's going to be the one to build the temple. So a temple is like this metaphor or this location or this dwelling place for God's house. That's where God lives. The question of how can this holy God live with these unholy, sinful people? How can they coexist? How can this happen? Well the temple is answer that question, that the it's the place where sin is atoned for and God's presence dwells and people go into his presence and, and it's this beautiful picture of this mansion for God and it's 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 ornate, it's expensive, and it's yet to be built. They had this temporary one as they're going through the desert through the wilderness. But finally David goes, I'm gonna build them like a permanent one or a semi permanent one, nothing's Nothing architectural is permanent, permanent, but, you know, more permanent than a tent. And they go, nope, your son's going to build it. So Solomon's going to build the temple. And so David goes, fine, I'm not going to build it. And I think the reason that God does this is he goes, I don't want people to think that uh, human initiation is the means of relationship with God actually it 's divine initiation that is a means of relationship with God. Humans don 't initiate with God. God initiates with humans. And so David, great idea, but it 's not going to be you. it 's going to be your son who builds it. Just so we 're clear about who is building relationship. With who? And then, so David buys this threshing floor, um, which we learn in First in Second Chronicles twenty-two, the other count of the story, that this threshing floor on which David builds an altar to be forgiven from his sin, that that ends up serving as the foundation for the future temple. That when Solomon comes along, he's going to build a temple. He builds it right on this plot of land that David buys. That the land on which the temple is bought is initially serving as an altar for the forgiveness of sin. And here's why this is significant. Is the temple the place where God meets with humanity? The temple the place where God dwells on earth? The temple the place where the spirit of God dwells most palpably? The temple the place where God speaks to humanity and the relationship between God and humanity is established and maintained? That the temple is built on the foundation of God's forgiveness for sin? That the foundation of our relationship with God Most High is not human initiative. It's not human intention. It's not human architecture. It's not human repentance. It's not human theologizing. It's not human uh, goodwill. It is divine forgiveness of human sin. That the baseline... The rock on which we stand, the the ground on which we walk, that from which we proceed has everything to do with the fact that humans are sinners and God is forgiving. All of your relationships with God are not built on anything besides the foundation of God's forgiveness of sin our sin. Not coming from a good family. Not coming from a bad family. Not having trauma. Not having lots of trauma. Not good theology. Not bad theology. Not our faith. Not our repentance. Not our initiative. Not our good intentions. God's forgiveness of sin is the foundation, period. Everything else is a house built on the sand that when we have this insecure relationship with our Father in heaven, it is largely derivative of us believing subconsciously or consciously that our relationship with God is somehow contingent on us. Contingent on the quality of our faith, contingent on the purity of our faith, contingent on our emotional state, contingent on how recently we repeated that last sin, contingent on uh, how connected we are, how much serving we do, contingent on our generosity, contingent on something related to us. But there's one contingency on our relationship with God, and it is God. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord does not change. The Lord is always a forgiving God. The Lord is always loving. The Lord is always initiating. And that is the foundation of the temple, and it's the foundation of our relationship with him. And it is the secure footing that we all have access to at all times. Just just today, I'm going to put Jay down for his nap. And it's like, Jay, who do you want to put you down for your nap? Mom or Dad? And I just gotten home from 1045 service. And he goes, looks at Mom, looks at me and goes, Dad. <laughs> and obviously, he loves me more than my wife. <laughs> the night before, he had said, Mom. <laughs> so, but you know, if I was... A deeply insecure person, having my kid say, "I like mom more today. I like dad more today. I like mom more today." Would toss me around a little bit more than does. But fortunately, I'm at least aware that a two and a half year old isn't to be trusted on measuring his affections (laughs) rightly, right? But also, like, I understand that I'm the dad, and my relationship with my son is on the basis of me, not on the basis of him. He doesn't know anything. He's a child. This is why the main metaphor that God gives us for our relationship with Him is that He is the Father and we are the children. That we are foolish little kids. I like this today. I like that today. I trust this today. I trust that tomorrow. I trust you today, Lord. I trust the bank account app the next day. This hour, I trust that. That's not, like we're, we're all over the place. But God the Father revealed in Jesus the Son is the same yesterday today and forever and so we have a foundation the same foundation that david had the foundation that we have that the that the forgiving god loves us and initiates with us let's pray and then we'll sing lord have mercy on us i ask that we would rest in the fact that you are our foundation god in the various ways we're tempted to trust data or information and not trust covenant with you i ask that you forgive us God, I uh, pray that even as we sing the song, uh, the words would become more and more true of us as we sing them. God, let us not be tossed to and fro by our faith or our emotional state, but let us have solid footing, knowing that you are a God who forgives sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.